What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Zero to Hear podcast. I am your host, Denny Duma. Tonight on the podcast, uh, Professor Simon Donner. He is a professor, as in his name, uh, at the University of British Columbia, uh, specializing in climate change. We kind of talk everything from causes of global warming to effects of what's happening in the world out there right now with uh, global temperature rise. Really interesting to hear his perspective and outlook on the topic. Uh, more optimistic and more opportunistic than um, a lot of the research that I've done, which is kind of cool. Uh, check it out. Let me know what you think. And if you like it or hate it, uh, leave us a review on iTunes and Spotify. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. I'm very excited, as you could probably tell from our little uh, introduction before we started taping. There's a lot of questions and more just opinion. I want to hear your opinion on a lot of topics. And like I mentioned, I just want to specify, um, I am not an expert in this field. I uh, listened to a podcast recently with David Wallace-Wells on the Joe Rogan show, uh, who is a journalist. He's not a scientist, but he has done a ton of research into what scientists have been saying and wrote a book recently uh, about climate change. I think he uh, posted an article in the New York Journal or something like that as well that yeah, had a New York ton Times of magazine. Yeah. In New York Times Magazine. Yeah. Okay. It had a ton of views. And so a lot of my knowledge is through that podcast or through, uh, through, yeah, through that podcast. I also had one of your colleagues on, uh, from UBC who shed some light a little bit into her expertise as well. A lot of what, uh, David Wallace Wells says is, is, uh, terrifying is scary. So I more just want to hear your, uh, input, your opinion as someone who's in the field every day. First question for you. Your thing. Are we in trouble? We are in trouble. <laughs> I mean, we're we're in trouble because we've known that this was a problem. Scientists have been warning about it for decades, mm -hmm. and we've put off taking action for so long. Yeah, and so you know, climate change uh, is happening. It's re you know, it's real. It's caused by humans. We can do things to solve it, but there's already been obviously some change to date. And no matter how fast we shift to reduce emissions, there's still going to be some impact, some sure. legacy of what we've done so far. And so that alone is worrisome. And uh, one way I think it makes sense uh, for <laughs> people out here in the Vancouver area to think of it is like the longer we put off taking action, the harder it gets to take, right? So it's like the difference between having like a bunny slope, mm -hmm. right? Then it becomes like, you know, we're moving into a double black diamond really, where it's getting harder and harder to avoid the more dangerous impacts because we have to make the transition so quickly. Sure. Yeah. One of the interesting things I, th I thought that he said in the Joe Rogan podcast was that... Um, with all the research that's been done by scientists in the last 30 plus longer years, there is a best case scenario outcome and there's a worst case scenario outcome. And most of what the public is hearing in newspapers and publications is best case scenario. So he wanted to bring a little bit of light, which was the reason for uh, the book that he wrote into the other potential outcomes. If this continues the way it's going, mm -hmm. what's the consensus in or with, scientists in the field that you're in contact with is it the best case scenario is likely 
going to happen or is it more we should be more concerned about this than we are well to to make sense of that i think uh, the first thing to talk about is what david wallace wells means when he says best versus sure. worst case scenario so what wallace wells did is looked at all of the the sort of lower probability lower likelihood events that come out of science the mm-hmm. possibilities that come out of science added them all up and then painted a scenario of what the future could look like if those things all happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the extrapolation involved in doing it, I mean, to be honest, most scientists don't really love what he's done. But Is that I right? Yeah, they okay. don't. But I, uh, I should be cautious to say they don't love what he's done, but, but a lot of scientists would say maybe there's some value in doing this. And so mm-hmm. one of the things to understand is like how to think about is just how we actually make predictions for the future, right? And so... What we know about the climate change, that it's caused by, hu- by humans emitting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, just comes from physics and chemistry. It's not, it's not a new or separate branch of science. It just it emerges from what we know about physics and chemistry that's been, uh, you know, the, the research on this particular subject really started around 200 years ago, and it's just been slowly building over time, right? Yeah. And that's what's led us to where we are today. And so to try to do predictions for the future we rely on computer models and all the models are doing is taking our understanding of physics and a little bit of chemistry and a little bit of biology and doing the calculations for us because you couldn't possibly do calculations at the scale that's necessary by hand. So the, but in order to do projections for the future, it's not just about how the climate's going to change. We have to think about what decisions humans are going to be making. Right. And so uh, there, there's sort of two types of uncertainty about in like future climate change projections. One of them is the, the, the scientific uncertainty, which comes from the fact that, okay, if we knew greenhouse gas emissions, were going to go on this, tra- some set trajectory for the next 200 years or hundred years. And we looked at all the science and where there's uncertainties and what we know well, and what we don't know as, as well, you're going to get a range of answers for that one particular scenario, mm-hmm. right? But the bigger piece of uncertainty is whether we'll be on that scenario or not, sure. because, you know, the future is going to depend on decisions we make around greenhouse gas emissions and other things. Um, and so when you look at the, um, the model results from climate change models, uh, sometimes p- people hear about the intergover- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC. That's an international body created by the United Nations that just summarizes what's known about climate science. And so they summarize all the model results for the world's governments. And if you look at those, there's, there's sort of four main scenarios that are being used. And Wallace Wells looked, took the highest end scenario with the highest greenhouse gas emissions and the worst impacts. And then looked at some of the worst things that could happen out of that scenario. Some like sort of feedback events that could happen that scientists aren't sure about. And if they all came to be, you would get something. So I don't really like to think of it as that there's a best case versus a worst case. There's just a range of possibilities. And the problem is the longer we delay reducing emissions, we're cutting off the low end of the range, basically. Right. Fair and enough. so okay. we, we've kind of eliminated the best case scenario at this point. So it's interesting that, so the reason that a lot of scientists are not necessarily in total agreement or like what, he has done is because he's kind of taking high end, low likelihood probabilities and then explaining what the world would look like at that low probability. Right. Is that right. right. Okay. And so there's nothing wrong with doing that. Sure. And, uh, but you know, for example, one of the things that, that panics a lot of people, but scientists a little bit less 
is the possibility that as we're um, as we uh, continue warming the planet and continue melting the north, the northern regions of the planet are are warming faster. The northern part of Canada is warming mm-hmm. faster than the rest of the world, and it's just because of physics. About, uh, a little bit about some atmospheric physics, and then also about the fact that as you melt snow and ice, you leave behind a darker surface, and then the darker surface. You know, think about trying to run barefoot across an asphalt road in the middle of the summer, right? The darker surface absorbs a lot of energy, right? Uh, And so as a result, you get a bit of a feedback effect. So we would expect Northern places to warm faster. As that happens, there is carbon locked in soils in the North in permafrost. And if you warm the permafrost such that some chemistry can start to happen, you could, that could lead to the release of, carbon in the form of carbon dioxide or in methane to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so that could be a, like a, a feedback effect that could make warming even worse. Right. And so one of the things that, that Wallace Wells and others that, that are, are uh, sort of being more catastrophic thinking and they're looking at climate change, take the most extreme projections of what sort of the permafrost feedback would be. Um, most of the science says those extremes are not likely to happen. Are not likely. Yeah, okay. I mean, there will definitely there. There's definitely you know CO two and methane release from permafrost, uh, but there's a real range of estimates of what could actually happen. And so I think, you know, what Wallace Wells is doing is just picking one end. Now, with the place where I'll defend him is that he is correct that scientists do tend to be kind of conservative in what they express. And and I think what Wallace Wells is is probably trying to do is just say, listen, somebody needs to put out what the absolute worst thing could be. Right. And so he chose to do that. I think what probably annoys scientists, and I can't, I can't speak for all scientists, but what probably annoys scientists about it is that you, is it, we don't ever just present one possibility for the future. And so he's presenting one possibility. And even though I think he's trying to say, this isn't necessarily what's going to happen. That's not necessarily, that might not be how people receive it. Sure. And so it's not, for that, to me, that's a, a bit of a questionable way to communicate. Uh, even just speaking specifically from my perspective, um, it at least has opened my eyes in terms of wanting to be more educated on it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and so for whether he's correct or not correct or putting it in the right light, it's a, a to me at least it is um, helping people be more curious about it. And I think once they dig deeper and do more research, they're going to be a little bit afraid <laughs> so no, maybe that will push people to be more conscious of carbon emissions no and that and that would be terrific and i you know that probably uh i would imagine you know Wallace Wells himself he's concerned about climate change and he thought nobody's talking about the this combination of worst case right. things maybe i should do it he probably had exactly that in mind maybe we'll get people motivated and so i i applaud that it, um if it's effective the only thing that worries me really about about expressing uh, the catastrophic scenario without possible alternatives is that sometimes uh, you can scare people into paralysis and it can seem like, oh, there's nothing we can do about this. Totally. When sure. there's so much we can do about this. And so uh, that that's where I get a little, you know, the uh, where alarmism, I mean, we should be alarmed about climate change, but really extreme alarmism. I worry that it can actually defeat, be kind of defeatist. Sure. Can we quickly just maybe explain um, what the big cause of global warming is? Sure. Um, so the the number one cause of global warming is fossil fuel emissions. Right? 
uh, fossil fuels are responsible for around 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions going to the other into the atmosphere. And so that means burning oil, burning coal, burning natural gas. Uh, the, another 20, the other 20% is caused mostly by land use change, which means mm. uh, deforestation, clearing forests, but not just clearing forests. It could be clearing a peatland, et cetera. So anything that takes, you know, a living mass of plants and clears it, those plants are full of carbon, if you let them decay and decompose on the forest floor, they're going to emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So, so those are the major causes. And, and adding those greenhouse gases to the atmosphere is effectively like putting kind of a warm blanket over the earth. So they trap a certain form of, of energy that's emitted by the earth's surface. Um, greenhouse gases can absorb that energy and they can re-emit it back down to the surface in a way that other gases in the atmosphere can't. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really the, made, that really is the only cause of the warming we've seen to date. Now, he makes mention of some scientists, and I'm assuming it's a pretty small percentage, that maybe don't necessarily believe in global warming. Or what are the arguments for not believing in this? Because it, to me, in the limited research that I've done, it, it's very difficult to understand that this is not happening. So, or, <laughs> that's a good question, yeah. Daddy. Um, or what are the like? What are people who disagree with it saying? So if you look online, you can find all sorts of sort of climate denialism arguments. And I, I never really loved the word denial uh, just because of the, some of the connotations that come with it. Mm -hmm. But it is at this point probably the best, most appropriate term because the science is so overwhelming here. I mean, this is like the level of consensus that we have on the fact that like cigarette smoking causes cancer, yeah. right? And so if you have some one claiming to be a medical doctor saying it's healthy to, you know, that smoking while he's in, in your appointment, you're not going to trust him. Right. I mean, and they, that's the same thing you should feel if you find, if somebody that claims to be a scientist or an expert on this, that says they don't think it's real. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. And that I think the thing to point about the over evidence being overwhelming is that it comes from a variety of different places. And so first of all, like the basic concepts are grounded in physics and chemistry. Um, but the other thing is that we, you know, so we can measure the warming we can measure the greenhouse gases are there are in the have increased in the atmosphere and that they've come from fossil fuel burning. We can even find a chemical signature in the extra CO2 in the atmosphere that shows where it came from. So we know what it came from. We know the planet's warmed. We know that more greenhouse gases cause warming. So incredible evidence there. But in addition, the planet's also warmed, like the pattern in which it's warmed. It's warmed in ways that could only make sense if greenhouse gases were the cause. So if you talk to mm -hmm. climate denialists they might say well it's the sun the sun must have gotten warmer but first of all you can look at the numbers and see that the numbers don't add up but regardless if you thought about it like if the sun was responsible for warming you'd expect the whole atmosphere and the surface to warm up because everything in the atmosphere would be affected by the sun's increasing sun's energy but that's not what's happened only the lower atmosphere has warmed up guess where the greenhouse gases are mm. in the lower atmosphere Another, another uh, sort of like fingerprint that you can sort of see of greenhouse gas on the planet is that the warming, more warming has happened at night than during the day. Now, the physics of that's a little bit complicated when talking about greenhouse gases, but again, think back to the sun. If the sun was responsible for warming, do you think it would warm more at night? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so a lot of what you find, and you, there's a whole alternative universe of facts on, <laughs> of this online, but what you'll find from the climate skeptic community has been so thoroughly debunked that it's mostly kind of a joke at this point um the problem is that information's been out there for a long time and it has had a real influence on a lot of people 
uh, it's still a pretty small fraction of Canadians and, and even Americans, but it has had an influence on them. And, and to some degree, the average person who doesn't believe in climate change, I don't think we should be too hard on them because it's not their fault that there's bad information out there. Sure. Be mad at the people spreading the information, not at the people who believe it. Yeah. What are the big causes of the greenhouse gas emissions? So the, the major causes, as we were talking about before, is from fossil fuel burning and, and a little bit from deforestation. So from... But where are they coming from? Is it, is it mostly industrial? Uh, well, it's a mix, right? So um, I don't actually, you know, I'd have to think about the numbers, the, the actual numbers, but so it's I a mix he of threw, coal. He threw out a couple stats that like, <clears throat> and these were, for some reason, they stick in my head, but flying across the country per seat, you're um, emitting as much carbon into the atmosphere as driving for eight months. So he said one flight for one person across the country is the same amount of carbon that goes out into the atmosphere as driving your car for eight months. Yeah. I mean, that that makes, that's believable. But that air travel is only responsible for 2% of carbon emissions. Yeah. So this is a very, and it's funny, one of my graduate students, Seth Wines works on this very issue. It's very confusing, right? Because I think for a lot of us uh, in the, in North America and Europe and the West, if you do your personal carbon footprint, you're, you're likely, and you're somebody that goes on vacations and planes, you're likely to find that air travel is a major part of your footprint. Okay. Right. Yep. Personally. Uh, personally. However, that's because, you know, what do you, what, where do your personal emissions from? What you eat, how you travel around, where you live, you know, where you live and that means how you get your electricity. Mm-hmm. Right. And those sorts of things. Um, and so if you live, for example, in British Columbia, where we have a very low carbon electricity system, it's almost entire, you know, largely hydro power um the average person's emissions are pretty low outside of their transportation and their food right right and so then air travel adds up for a lot but the segment the fraction of the world that actually flies in planes often is pretty small right that right. it's really right the small part of the wealthy portion of the world right and so it doesn't add up to a huge fraction of the world's emissions but it is uh significant for for individuals in our in you know, in, in my part of the world, in, in, in my, uh, circle, I would say sure. for sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess what would other, what would other big causes be then? So, you know, so if we think about, you know, the, the core is, you know, coal, oil, and natural, natural gas, right? So that means, uh, coal fired power plants. So electricity, mm-hmm. right. Um, coming from coal, which is not that common and not in, in BC, a little bit in Alberta, a little bit in Eastern Canada, okay. and then a lot in the United States, China, and other countries. Um, oil, obviously for vehicles right? Transportation. And it's not just personal transportation, right? We have to think about trucks and shipping, right? So within Canada, it's about 50-50 personal transport versus freight in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, natural gas is for heating, also for electricity as well, and a little bit for, for vehicles. So there's a mix of the three. Where it gets complicated is it depends like how you divide, decide to divide it up. So right. for example, like agriculture is responsible for probably for about at least a fifth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And that's because, well, raising food, growing food means using machines and those machines use oil. So that's some of it. But the other part is that we clear land to grow crops. And so that releases emissions, but also the actual, um, the, uh, we graze animals and the animals themselves produce emissions. They produce methane and nitrous oxide as do all of us, Mm -hmm. but we've added more, cattle to the planet so we're responsible sort of for their emissions (laughs) 
Uh, and so if you add those things up, agriculture is um, agriculture's significant. But so if you really think of it, you know, agriculture, electricity, uh, transport, big ones. Within Canada, uh, it's about a quarter um, industrial oil and gas in, in industry in about a quarter okay. transportation. And then a mix of other things afterward, after that. What, um, I guess if we look back at the last 30 years, which according to my limited research again, is when a lot of the global warming has taken place. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the planet's been warming since the mid 1800s, but it's, it's accelerated in the past 30 years. So that is true. Yeah. What have we seen globally in terms of the effects that is, that the earth's warming is having in the last 30 years? Um, so, I mean, the effects of global warming, I mean, they're, they're, they really are worldwide, not just in the, so the average temperature, but warming in almost every part of the planet. And then all the sort of things that come with warming. So, for example, the warmer that air is, the more water it can hold. And it just, it's a relationship that comes out of physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about for every one degree Celsius, you can hold about 7% more water. So there, And so we can measure this. The humidity, or the specific humidity is the technical term, has gone up. On the planet, there's more water in the atmosphere, which means that when it rains, it should rain harder. And we see there's more extreme rainfall than there used to be, right? We see more extreme heat waves. Obviously, that's not surprising as the planet's getting warmer. Um, There's some evidence for uh, changes in droughts as well, summer droughts as well. And then all the things that come with warming. So the snow line in the mountains moving up, right? Glacier shrinking. Uh ice cap shrinking lakes uh i i for many years my family i'm from ontario originally we play very very poor hockey out on the ice on new year's (laughs) eve like really bad and the length of time the lakes are frozen the winter is getting shorter and shorter Mm. right and we can see this even with when cities decide to create the ice rinks like the the urban ice rinks in canada that season has gotten shorter right so there's all things like that and then there's all the sort of biological implications right so if it's gotten warmer you would expect plants to maybe start flowering earlier and they have, mm-hmm. right? You'd expect to see things migrating to higher latitudes, but also higher altitudes species, right? And we've, we see that as well. And then the things that are really worrisome to me are places where there's sort of thresholds. So there are organisms that have thresholds. You go behind a temperature and it's hard for them to survive. And so one of the things I study is tropical corals, like in coral reefs. And the reason I came to studying that as a climate scientist, somebody who was good at physics is because they're so sensitive to temperature. And so we study this uh, process called coral bleaching, what happens to corals when they're exposed to really warm water temperatures, right? And my, my research group has a database of coral bleaching events around the world. And before 1990, there's about 30 or so, I can't remember the exact number, reports in our database. And since 1990, we have around 15,000. Wow. Right? Just showing and it, what that is, that's temperatures bumping up above the threshold more often and so this happens to corals and they can survive it but a lot of corals will die as a result and that's why sometimes when you hear headlines from the united nations about the effects of climate change they're always warning about coral reefs because they're one of the ecosystems most uh with like the nearest term threat right and so those sorts of things where there's some system in the planet that's really sensitive to a small change that's where we really got to be worried what i guess this is a good segue here. What, what is your background in climate change? Why, how come you got into it and, and 
You mentioned coral reefs, but what kind of um, research have you done in your career? No, it's a great. Thanks for asking. The uh, my own background, you know, I'm like I said, I'm Canadian from Toronto. I I think I like like a lot of Canadian kids. I grew up around the water a little mm. bit, uh, not the ocean, but you know, lakes. And uh, I was always interested in what was going on outside. But I was good at math and physics. And so when I went to school, I decided to sort of study. I started off studying physics and then realized I think I wanted to study something about the planet. And so a chance to do that, the combination of the two is atmospheric science, which is physics, but it's about the atmosphere. Okay. You know, and uh, and so I went to graduate school and I ended up uh, after trying a few, looking into a few different things, I did a PhD in atmosphere and ocean sciences, which is what uh, most people who would become climatologists or climate scientists, that's what they would, would study. Uh, it's also what people who become meteorologists like doing weather okay. forecasting, yep. not necessarily the person on television, although sometimes, you know, them as well. So I did that training and, uh, and so I did all of the, I studied all of the, the physics of how the atmosphere works, which is, uh, you know, like r- how the greenhouse effect works, all those sorts of things, how air moves around, so fluid dynamics, all these sort of stuff, chemistry mm-hmm. and everything. So we studied those things, but then I didn't actually work on that. Like there are many scientists that that's what they then do their research on. I, I took that knowledge and used it to study how the climate impacts other things. Okay. And so I started by looking at how, um, uh, as a PhD student, I was looking at how um, dead zones form. So areas of really low oxygen on the coast of the ocean. And I was curious about the role climate might play and other things might play. And so I started with that. And then when I left and I finished my degree, I had a chance to work on something. Uh, I had a, chan- a chance for a research job where I just had to work on something that was a da- potentially dangerous impact of climate change. And, and knowing the research, the little bit, the research on coral reefs, I said, we should be studying this because if, if the, you know, the, from a policy perspective, the world's governments are trying to figure out like what level of warming is not acceptable. And one of the definitions that have been suggested is, well, we don't want to lose some major ecosystem. And so coral reefs are so sensitive to climate change I said, well, we, we, I talked to the person I was working with, said we should study corals and try to see if we can figure out a range of at what level of warming are corals under severe threat, because then that's a level of warming you want the world to avoid. So I actually didn't, I did not, I'm not a marine biologist. I did not come out as a marine biologist. I still think marine biologists are cool and I wish I was one, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but from like a policy perspective, thought this was an important thing to study. I didn't know that doing that would mean having to learn some marine biology in the end it did. Uh, uh, but yeah. And so that led me sort of to a little bit of the work we do today. Okay. Yeah. What, um, can you talk a little bit about that and the research that you've done with coral? Sure. So I guess you mentioned a little bit about like, they're very susceptible to climate change. They're very, um, they get affected by it quickly, but what is, what does that mean for, I guess the greater ecosystem? No, it's a really, it's a really important question. So, Corals are, you know, corals are really unique uh, creatures, right? I mean, if you're playing like 20 questions and somebody said, you know, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? <laughs> the answer would be yes, because corals are animals, but they don't, they're basically like sedentary jellyfish. They don't move okay. around. Okay. But they calcify, they build bone. But, you know, it's calcium carbonate, just like our bones. Really? But they build, but that's what a coral reef is the okay. reef part. Yeah. They're building the reef themselves. And they also, but they have to get their energy from somewhere, right? And most animals get their energy initially from plants, right? Like plants do photosynthesis and something eats the plant and then something eats the something, right? And so corals, 
live in symbiosis with little tiny plants, basically like microscopic algae live in their tissue. The, the algae do the photosynthesis and then give the products of that to the coral. So the coral gets some food. The waste from the coral goes back to the algae to fertilize the photosynthesis. They've got a good arrangement. <laughs> so you've got this whole thing. And so with that, from that symbiosis, they can build these incredible three-dimensional structures, which is the stuff the Canadians see on tropical vacations. Mm-hmm. We see in Finding Nemo, et cetera, right? You know, about a quarter of the world, the like marine biodiversity is on coral reefs, a quarter of the species in the ocean. Uh, and so all that's just because of this incredible thing that corals are able to do. Mm-hmm. So if you lose the coral, right, we are going to lose, if, if the corals die as a result of bleaching, that means they're no longer building the framework of the reef. And of course, you've already has waves that can break apart the reef. There's organisms that drill into the structure. And so if you're not constantly building it, the system will break, will break down, which means there goes all the, ha- the habitat for all of the other things that live on the coral reef. But also, the reefs play a pretty important role in protecting the shoreline. So if you live in one of these small island countries that's really sensitive to sea level rise, and your coral reef is degraded because of bleaching and global warming, the waves get larger. And it's not just that they, the reef is like a physical barrier. It's not like that it's a wall. It's that it's complicated and it's rough. And so it creates drag. And so the smoother mm-hmm. and simpler the reef gets, less and less living coral, just some plants living on it instead, the more the damages from sea level rise. And this is one of the things that my students and I have been trying to make sense of. Yeah. It's crazy because like as a regular civilian who is not a scientist, you don't think about it at that level, right? You think, oh, geez, I'm seeing more forest fires. Oh, geez, yeah. there's more hurricanes than there were five years ago. But like, how's it all connected, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. More flooding. And I guess that is... I mean, we've just had some terrible flooding in eastern Canada, obviously. Yeah. And uh, it's been so dry this this spring. I mean, it's been a lot of... Uh, I think it's been enjoyable for a lot of people in the lower mainland, but this does not bode well for the summer. For sure. Right? I know. So... My car said 28 degrees today. I don't know if that was correct or not, but maybe in the sun. That's crazy. I need to open the windows. (laughs) (laughs) Not inside. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just sweating in there. (laughs) What? I guess this is very likely to continue based on how much uh, greenhouse gas is being emitted. What does the future look like? And maybe you can give a couple different perspectives and one of the, uh, it seemed like one of the big things is that the, um, global temperature has risen according to this podcast, 1.1 degrees in the last 30 years. So, and, and they make reference to, if it gets to two degrees, this is what could potentially the earth could look like. If it gets to four degrees, this is what it could look like. From your perspective, what will the earth look like if it, if it keeps getting hotter and hotter? So the, I'll, I'll start with the numbers that they used, right? Sure. And so uh, two degrees is a number that gets thrown around uh, in casual conversation, but in policy conversations around the world. And that started, you know, that started with this idea that the world's governments should come to some sort of agreement on what level of climate change is dangerous, that international policy, you know, they have these, the UN climate meetings that are held every year. Mm-hmm. The uh, convention that what they called the Framework Convention on Climate Change that started that one of you know Article Two in that convention says we want to avoid dangerous 
impacts on the climate system. And, and so what, over these negotiations over the years, they've come to agreement that we should decide on what level is dangerous. And so the idea that two degrees would be dangerous was suggested a number of years. It really started actually in the 70s. And that sort of emerged as the number and was widely being discussed in climate negotiations starting about 10 years ago. Uh, and more recently, uh, there's been, uh, there was a whole big report about it last year, thinking of maybe the number should be lower. And so that's why sometimes you hear about a threat of 1.5 degrees being sort of the safe limit. And that was actually about, that was almost about geopolitics is as much as it's about climate because the two degree number was effectively suggested by Europe years ago. And so you've got all these countries that are in the developing world, small island developing states, like some of the places I work in the Pacific islands, not responsible for climate change, feeling the worst effects of it. Right. They feel like you shouldn't get to choose this. And we're being impacted already now. We think the number should be lower. And so it's resulted in um, the, the, the kind of the global agreement saying we want to avoid two degrees and hopefully also avoid 1.5 degrees, right? We're at this point, we're very unlikely to avoid 1.5 degrees. We're almost there, right? And so that's unlikely to happen. Two degrees is possible, but more likely right now, we're aiming towards more of a three, three and a half degree warming world. And that brings with it, you know, there's so many different things you could focus on. Obviously, you know, more extreme heat waves, uh, hurricanes or tropical cyclones, when they happen, being more likely being stronger, mm -hmm. being having heavier rainfall and having higher storm surges because the sea level's higher, forest fires, et cetera. Um, one of the, the biggest concerns worldwide, I would say, is sea level rise because of what fraction of the world's cities and people live in coastal areas. And because sea level rise is something with a huge legacy. So the decisions we make now are going to determine what's going to happen to sea levels for many centuries. Um, in order for sea levels to rise one, one meter or more this century, you need to have a large contribution from the major ice sheets on the planet, from right. Greenland or from right. West Antarctica. So the thing is, Greenland can't melt into the ocean overnight. Right. So when people say two degrees of warming might be enough to lead to the melt of the Greenland ice sheet, that doesn't mean it subtly appears in the ocean the moment you get to two degrees. Right. It could take a few hundred years, but we could trigger it to happen. Right. And so I think what's difficult sometimes, uh, and, and even scientists are challenged by this, what can be difficult sometimes to think about climate change impacts is when you're causing, when the cause is happening and when the effect will happen. Right. And so we have what worries me the most now isn't the what warming, what the planet's going to look like at two degrees of warming. It's what two degrees of warming will eventually do. Right. To the planet. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I guess based on the trajectory that we're going, how quickly does that two degree number come about? Uh well, we could, you know, we could be at 1.5 degrees more. I mean, it, it, again, depends a little bit on the sort of natural noise in the system. So mm -hmm. the ups and natural ups and downs of climate that do also happen. Uh, but we could, you know, be looking at passing the 1.5 degree th threshold before 2040 and the two degree threshold, you know, after the uh, 2050s um, and beyond. Um, it's, listen, this is worrisome. This is real. This is why you're hearing such incredible urgency. This is why you have see such an incredible movement among young people right now that are saying, you old people left us with this problem. What are you doing? This is our futures, you know? And so um, I think the energy around, around it is great. I just wish we'd started earlier. Sure. Yeah. It, 
I guess if I was 18, 19, 20, like your students, are they very concerned about this? They are, uh, you know, they are, I wouldn't and say all just of them people are. in your field. No. Like how do, yeah, I guess, how do we create more awareness of it? Well, I, you know, I say one thing that's really interesting. So I, I obviously teach classes about this, right? And so I just, just finished a semester in which I taught two classes. One of them was called climate change, science and society. Hmm. The other one wasn't specifically about climate change, but had elements of it because you cannot talk about, I mean, you can't teach. I teach in a geography department. You can't teach any of our subjects really without talking about climate change mm-hmm. in some way, because not just all the physical and biological changes is happening, but the politics of the issue, the power dynamics, right? You, you know, we think about the, poli- the the federal politics in Canada right now is dominated by fighting about what we're doing or not doing about climate change, right? right. Like, so it's really hard um, to avoid the subject. Uh, I'd say all the student body is largely really interested and the fraction of the students that are highly motivated has increased over time. I wouldn't say everybody's highly motivated, yeah. but um, you know, there uh, UBC uh, Grace Nozek, a student at UBC started this uh, group called the climate hub, which was sort of bringing together all the different students and groups on campus that were thinking about the climate change. And they've had done lots of terrific things in the past year and they are overloaded with volunteers where they like all these people are volunteering to do things. And they, and you know, we need to find more projects for them in a way. So I think there's a lot of energy for it. I think people are trying to struggle with trying to figure out what people want to do something and they want to know what they can do. Yeah. Yeah. 2040, 2050 is not very far away. Um, And I understand that the effects on this temperature are going to be long-term effects. They're not going to happen overnight. They're not going to happen in 2040. But if we continue at this progress, let's say it gets to two degrees in 2050, what, how much of how much of the ecosystem is going to change and what are the potential outcomes of what the world's going to look like? You mentioned sea level rise. Yeah. Do we have an approximation of how much, how much it's going to rise in those next 30, 40 years? No, sure. And I'm happy to talk about that. I want to be clear about the temperatures that I'm saying. Sure. This is there. There's some of, there's some, what we would call kind of committed warming where just because the, the system is still responding to past greenhouse gas emissions, there's still some warming sort of baked into the system. Right. Uh, but beyond that, it's up to us. Like this does not have to happen. Right. Right. I'm giving you one of the scenarios. This We could be on a lower scenario. Basically, um, if we change nothing and continue the way we're going. Yeah, that's that's sort of where we'd be looking at, I think. Okay. Um, in terms of sea level rise, uh, the, the model projection, so if you, you went straight out of what the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change had in their last report, which said sea level rise could be up to a meter by the year 2100. And that's that's a meter above what it was at the beginning of this century. And so it's already changed a little bit. Right now, the sea level is rising about three and a half millimeters per year. That does not sound like much, right? right? If we're on that high-end trajectory, um, then that rate of rise is somewhere from like eight to 16 millimeters per year. So start to do the math on that. You're like, well, hold on a second. That's 16, cent, you know, 16 millimeters a year, that's 16 centimeters a decade. That's, and every time the sea level goes up a little bit, that means every high tide is higher, every storm surge is higher, et cetera. And so it's actually very significant. Um, the big uncertainty in sea level rise is the contribution from the, the big ice sheets from Greenland and Antarctica, like I mentioned. Um, some of the costs of sea level rise are like easier to calculate. So for example, as water warms, it expands. Mm-hmm. And so the ocean should go up as a result. That is reasonably easy to calculate. 
it's not that easy to figure out the rate at which an ice sheet's going to melt because of the, the complexity, you know, the, you know, kilometers thick, the incredible complexity of the physical processes going on inside and everything. And so that's where a lot of the uncertainty comes from. And so although the, the estimate from the last IPCC report was up to one meter, uh, more recent studies are saying more up to one and a half meters. And there are some that would even say higher than that. And so to give you an example, the city of Vancouver, Vancouver's planning, I'm not sure about New West, but the city of Vancouver's planning standard is one meter for 21. They're planning for one meter for 2100. And that's the recommendation that came from the province. Right. So, you know, you live in a, right. A lot of the lower mainland's uphill and it's not a big deal, but think about Richmond, think about Delta, think about parts of Surrey. This is a serious issue because as the sea level goes up, it's not just about flooding land. It's every time there's a higher tide, that means more salt water getting into the ground. Right. It means the Fraser river gets a little bit saltier and that's where farmers get their irrigation water and Delta. Like, so there's cascading impacts from this. A meter and a half is a big amount. <laughs> like how tall am I? 1.7 meters, something like that. So it's basically the size of me. It's like six and a half feet or six, whatever, just over six feet. I would assume. <laughs> and this is talking about Canada, right? So in other parts where, in other parts of the world, could the sea level rise higher? No, that's actually a really good question. And people don't usually think about this, right? Because you think sea level, well, it's all, it's one level, right? Not really, actually. The ocean's not totally flat. Uh, And and sea level rise will vary a little bit around the world. Um, In fact, in British Columbia, the... Our latitude on the West Coast in the Pacific and a little bit in the Atlantic as well should expect uh, sea level rise to be a little bit higher than the global average. And it's a little bit just because of the gravitational field of the Earth and where the and where the melting happens from. So you think about the fact that the extra water is being added closer to the poles. Right. Right. And how right. that then deforms the height of the ocean a little bit. And so there's some physics to that. But that that variation in how much sea level rises from place to place is small compared to the total change. Okay. Right. So I don't think it's the big concern, but uh, I think the thing with sea level rise to be worried about is what that means for a storm surge. Right. So every time we have one of these winter low pressure systems that comes in that comes into the lower mainland, right, the storm surge can be higher than it used to be. Right. And and. Uh, you know, we looked at, if you think it, uh, we're lucky enough, of course, not to be affected by tropical storms, right? With hurricanes, right? Yet. Um, it's highly unlikely we can be affected <laughs> by hurricanes for a variety of reasons, but, um, but places that are, this is a big issue, right? You look at um, Hurricane Sandy and all the damage it did in, in New York City, right? Mm. Hurricane Sandy was barely even technically actually not a hurricane when it actually struck New York, right? It was category one and it had just dropped below category one, right? When it made landfall. And it, the storm surge did a ton of, I used to live outside New York City. The storm surge did a ton of damage in lower Manhattan and parts of New Jersey, um, including destroying the surf, surf shop where I used to, where I bought my board really? years ago. Uh, and, you know, incredible effect on all these people that live, live in the New York and New Jersey area. And the way to think about it is that that storm could have happened with and without climate change. But if that storm happened in 1890, the storm surge would not have been as high. Mm. right and so maybe climate change didn't create the hurricane but climate change made the impacts of it worse right right and so that's and so that's with sea level rise what worries me is the impacts of the the extreme events really in a way are there some cities that become unlivable 
in North America? That, you know, that's a really good question. And I think, uh, I'll step back from it sure. actually a little bit to think about it. Um, so often when we're talking about climate change, we think about like, well, is this dangerous? Will this be livable? Can we adapt, et cetera? Um, there's not really one right answer because this isn't something that's just about science, right? I mean, so yeah. if we had endless resources, right, we could probably adapt, right? You could put the whole, you could set the entire city back. We could lift the, every building in the city up a story and it wouldn't be an issue if you put the funding into it. And there are places where in small scales that might be possible, right? But you think about the resources that takes. And I don't mean just the money, but also the, the actual equipment, the skill sets to be able to do this stuff, the planning. And like, the time involved. The time involved. All of, you put all that together and you think, who's going to be able to do that? If somebody can, it's going to be people in the wealthy part of the world, right? Sure. And so that's the thing is when you ask, can we adapt to climate change? The question is, well, can everybody adapt? Who's going to be hurt the most, right? And the worst thing about this is the people that have the generally have the lowest capacity of the countries that have the lower capacity to adapt, they're often least responsible for the problem as well. I guess that's a good point, actually, is who who's going to be affected most? Let's say resources aside, like what sure. parts of the world are going to be affected most? Uh, you know, no one's immune. Everyone's being affected. Uh, I think the places long-term that are the most concerned are you know, low-lying areas. Uh, so countries in, in major cities that are major threat from sea level rise and from tropical storms. Mm. Because again, you've got sea level rise, you've got uh, storms when they happen that ne won't necessarily be more of them being stronger, right. meaning stronger winds, heavier rainfall, et cetera, uh, and sea level being high, higher as well. So that means places like Bangladesh, right? Which is, you know, country of over hundred million people, a lot of them living very close to uh, close to sea level mm. in the delta in the delta of the Ganges, Brahmaputra. There are other major river deltas in the world that are very low lying as well. So the Mekong River Delta as well in in Southeast Asia. So places like that, I think I would worry about the most. Obviously, I do work research in the Pacific Islands, and one of the reasons for that is I work you know in a, in a couple of different countries that are among the most the poster poster childs. I hate using that term, but right. uh, for climate change sometime, because they have no, they have almost all their lands less than two meters above the ocean. So they're affected. Uh, they're under great threat. Uh, so those, so those are the places that jump to mind first. Uh, but I think it's important not to just look at the direct impacts of climate change, but the kind of indirect impacts, right? Because we can mistakenly start to think that we're insulated sometimes living in, you know, in, in, reasonably wealthy in North American city or Western city, European city, whatever it is. Um, but what happens when climate change causes, what happens when climate, you know, war, uh, rising temperatures and drought affects more than one, you know, wheat growing region of the world at the same time. Right. And we will still have wheat in Canada, but prices change. Right. And so you have these market signals moving around the world. Right. What happens when climate change causes um, causes a drought in a part of the world where there's all sorts of other different challenges, governance challenges, all sorts of different things. And then maybe that leads to a famine. Maybe that leads to some sort of conflict. Climate change didn't cause it, but climate change was sort of a multiplier. Yeah. Helped make it happen. Right. 
And suddenly Canada, which seems like it's insulated from that, isn't, right? Because maybe we're being good people and taking in refugees. Maybe we're sending troops, right? Maybe it's affecting imports of things. There was a flood, uh, a really bad uh, a flood a few years ago, for example, in, in Bangkok, in Thailand, right? Uh, low-lying city, right? Heavily affected by this flood. Turns out there's a chip in most hard drives. They're, they're only made there. Or they're mostly made in some factories and they were closed for a short time and it was a reason it was hard to get. Um, it was a reason like I was, you know, if you're buying a computer, from, ordering a computer from Dell, there was a delay mm. because of that. You know, obviously not a hardship for people, but it's an example of the sort of cascading effects. And I think those cascading things are worrisome because they're not things that are easy for us to predict, right? Our climate models can't say these things. And that's where something like what David Wallace-Wells was doing is useful, I think, is that we might underestimate the impacts of climate change because there's stuff you can't calculate. Right. You almost need a fiction writer to come up with it, right? Or a magazine. Right. Yeah, so. And there's so many multipliers, like, and then you yeah. look at one country like Bangladesh, for example, if it's underwater in 40 years, where are those 100 million people going? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one country. It, it's one big country. And I think, you know, there'll be internal adaptation solutions as well. It doesn't mean the whole country is going to be depopulated, it, 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 uh, but, uh, but these, these are important questions to ask, right? How we're going to deal with it. I mean, we see this in a small degree here, just within British Columbia, right? So you think of people living in, in, you know, urban parts of the lower mainland, right? Where you live in a city, you think you could make it, you know, you, it could be somebody you've actually made a decision. I want to live in the city because I'm don't want to live too close to the forest because I know how high the forest fire risk is in BC. Right. And you see how all these communities have been so heavily affected by forest fires the past couple of summers here in BC. I mean, it's terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you feel the effects here too. Right. The smoke doesn't stay in one place. Well, that was one of the things we were talking yeah. about is growing up as a kid. I don't remember ever being affected by a forest fire. And the last three years, it seems has just like the whole month of August, we're covered in smoke. Yeah. And, and I won't say small... every summer is going to be like that, yeah. but this is the best thing to say is that that's an example of what we expect to see happening more frequently in the future. And so there's, and there's, you know, there is a, a study uh, some folks in Victoria did a study where they did what we call detection and attribution work. So it's kind of like detective work. You're trying to say what fraction of, you know, can we attribute what caused uh, the forest fires? And, and, you know, we're able to say, you know, what fraction of the event was probably climate change responsible for. Right. Right. I don't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but it was about a third, I think. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess like even going further, at what point is a lot of the world unlivable because some, some parts, some desert land is just going to be too hot to even survive and nothing is going to grow there. So people are going to have to move out. Um, sounds like potentially even in 40, 50 years, some parts of the world are going to be underwater. So people are not going to be able to live there. So, and it just sounds like it just keeps escalating and escalating. At what point is a lot of the world unlivable? And how, and how do we adapt to that? So I, so I'll, I'll be honest. I don't actually, I'm not worried about a lot of the world becoming unlivable. Like as dangerous as climate change is, uh, this is not going to drive humans to extinction. Right. I mean, we, there's some, 
very catastrophic stuff out there that you can find online, articles, books, and everything that have been written. And that's not what comes out of the science, right? The the worry basically is that, that the climate's just changing faster than we're, for the most part, able to adapt. It's changing faster than at any point, uh, you know, in the history of like human civilization, right? right? In the past 10,000 years, right? So it, that doesn't mean that, you know, two degrees of warming wouldn't be a big deal if it happened over 10,000 years, right? Right. We could respond. And so the question is like, how much can we respond to? And it's not just like, are we physically capable of it? But are we going to be able to, ours is like given like governance, given how collective decision-making has worked. Like there's a lot of things that can be done to respond to climate change. And a lot of communities uh, in the lower mainland, the communities are, like most of the cities are being very serious about adaptation to climate change, particularly sea level rise. Um, so I do think that there's a lot we can do uh, to adapt. There's a lot that is being done and we should never, uh, you know, dismiss human ingenuity, right? The way I think about the problem is that we could just have a better future, right? Right. And there's so many parts of the world that are going to struggle adapting. And there'll probably be all sorts of surprises we're not fully expecting, even in this part of the world, that we have like a choice. Like this is an incredible decade to be living in, right? Like we really have a choice that we can be making about what the world's going to look like for a long time, right? And on one side, you know, where we seriously address climate change, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, there's all sorts, not only do we not get all these dangerous impacts of climate change, but we get all sorts of other positive things. And I think that's the story that's missed sometime, that most of the actions that are being suggested to take to address climate change are good ideas anyways. Right. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll point out one, right? So, and I, I apologize if people, if anyone watching this has heard me say this before, but the, most of the things, for example, that uh, release greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere, fossil fuel burning, right? Burning coal, burning gasoline, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Those are also causes of most of the world's air pollution. Right. Including smog forming pollutants, right? But also just soot, like particulate black matter stuff that gets into the lungs of asthmatics like me, right? Right. So if we got off of using gasoline vehicles, so if we shifted to electric vehicles and we shifted to an electricity grid that was largely renewables and we used, charged those vehicles off that grid, so we weren't burning fossil fuels anymore. We would eliminate most air pollution, hmm. right? Cities would be clean. Cities would be quiet. Cars don't make much sound. Um, and a lot fewer people would die. So more people died from air pollution in the last century than from the world wars combined. It's about twice as many people died as a result of air pollution. Really? Yeah. And so oh, yeah. I'm like, when people say, why should we fight climate change? And I'm like, if you, if we were successful at this, you would solve climate change. Oh, and by the way, you'd solve air pollution, right? So, I mean, so many of these things are good ideas anyways. And we just, what it's about at this point is kind of mobilization, right? The technologies largely exist or are quickly emerging, right? And it's a, how do we get, how do we make the change fast enough to avoid some of these dangerous impacts, right? That's where my head is most of the time. Yeah. What are, I guess, what are um, world leaders doing or saying or not doing? Are, are a lot of the world leaders on board? 
and effectively trying to make this better? Um, because I would, yeah, it's tricky. (laughs) I would think a lot of the people who have power in terms of setting policy to reduce these types of emissions are concerned about the financial impact. Yeah. They make a lot of money burning fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, you have the financial impact. I would put even shorter as one of the challenges is that you just have the electoral impact, which Mm -hmm. is that you're only in office for four years. What does fighting climate change win you? Because you don't, if you're successful, there's not something tangible that happens. But which is why I think it's so important to talk about the other reasons to do this, right? And so if you go back to um, when when Obama was in office, right? When they put together their amendments to the Clean Air Act to severely cut down pollution from coal burning power plants, which the Trump administration has since removed. But when they put that together and then they announced it and they put together infographics and everything on it it was all around how many lives it was going to save right and Mm. okay there was some marketing to that but it's smart and true right if they reduced coal burning for climate reasons you also get rid of some of the air pollution that's caused by burning coal right and that does save lives right and so i think for uh world leaders are reluctant. They need to think about what are the other good things we're going to get from doing this sometimes. Um, and we're just, you know, the four-year political cycle is, is, is tough when we're dealing with long-term problems. If nothing changes in the next 30 years, is there much technology or are they working on technology to reduce carbon in the atmosphere? Oh, it's an interesting question. So there's, um, so removing like scrubbing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is possible but takes an enormous amount so there are people have invented like machines that can do this but they take an enormous amount of energy so the energy out the energy in can be greater than the energy out and of course where does the energy come from exactly right so so at this point it's not affordable it's not feasible at scale but there is you know one of the there's i think two plants in the world that do this and one of the first ones is in squamish it's called company's called carbon engineering it's based in squamish interesting yeah okay. uh, came out of um, a guy named david keith at the university of alberta uh alberta i think alberta calgary forgetting where he was and also at, he's also at harvard um uh, sort of initiated it and what they do is it you know scrub takes co2 out of the air using a, this complicated scrubbing and filtration system and makes pellets out of it okay so you can think like wood pellets which you could then use for fuel so that works of course as soon as you use them you're burning it back. Right. And so the trick is, if you want to reduce the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you need to scrub it out of the atmosphere and then bury it in the ground. Right? Not simple. <laughs> right? It's not to say that we won't ever devise a way to do it, but also it's going to cost money. And so in order for it to be worthwhile, you can't lean just on innovation to make it happen. We need government policy. Like there would need to be, you know, as, as a start in Canada, and, and we have in British Columbia, a price on carbon that made it worth it for somebody to... Uh, do this i'm not i'm not terribly optimistic this will be scalable uh technology but it is possible actually you know if you think of uh, go back to the apollo spacecraft spacecraft that went to the moon right you had three guys crammed in this really tiny space breathing out carbon dioxide right after three days the air you know three or four days the air in the spacecraft would be toxic it could kill you so they need some they actually had a co2 scrubbing device in the spacecraft 
Okay. But that was possible because the air, you know, when the concentration is really high of something, it's easier to get it out. But CO2 levels in the atmosphere, though a big influence on climate, they're very small concentration. So it's really hard to remove it. Have they yeah. effectively tried using this technology? No. Yeah, no, it, it works. I mean, it's operating in Swamish. So it does actually okay. work. I'm not an expert in the, the chemistry of it sure. or anything, but, um, but it, you know, it's, it's what I would, I would call like a demonstration, uh, plant. Right. And there's no, uh, nothing like this is being done at scale yet. Now, of course, the other possibility is to try to grow more forests. And that is something that, that a lot of countries around the world do. And China's invested in very heavily for not necessarily for these reasons, but, but as well as a rat, rapidly trying to regrow or grow new forest land. And so that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and traps it in the trees. And so that works, but you know, that could only deal with a small fraction, like with a fraction of the problem. They're just, there's not enough land available to grow trees on even the most high efficiency trees to, to pull all the CO2 back out of the and every, yeah. every year there's a forest fire. The CO2 just goes back. And up. that's, that's the problem. You need to keep it in, the, in right. the forest. Yeah. Is there any other technologies that I I'm assuming are not readily available, but that they're working on or that so, could potentially. So it, this has been a big, it's interesting you're asking about this because it's been a big subject of, um, of research of late and that th- has some controversy attached to it as well. So people call it negative emissions. Okay. So emissions going the other direction. Sure. Yeah. Kind of a strange term, but that's the ter- scientists are, you know, always wonky with these things. <laughs> and so, so we call it, so anything that would pull CO2 out of the air, right? And so uh, direct carbon capture, what we were talking about, yep. there's a machine that does it is one thing. Uh, planting forests, you know, reforestation is one. Uh, another one is the idea of using, uh, uh, using plants, but then using, you know, so plants doing photosynthesis, taking CO2 out of the air, using them to then generate energy, right? So the idea that you could generate some sort of bioenergy from uh, burning plants, but then in the power plant that burns the sort of biomass from the plants to convert it to energy, stopping the emissions from leaving the plant and burying them in the ground. So it's like a multi-step process. They call it bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And because academics love doing this, they have a short form, they call it BECS. And so this in, and I'll give you an example of this. So in the scenarios that were put together to see how could the world war, avoid one and a half degrees of warming, right. right? which was put together for this big intergovernment panel on climate change report. We're very close to one and a half degrees of warming. So it's pretty hard to do. So in order to get to one and a half degrees, uh, to, to avoid one and a half degrees, not only do we radically reduce emissions, but we would need to deploy a lot of this negative emissions technology. So in that scenario, there's assumption that there's a lot of this BECS being done. Problem with something like that is, well, you need to use a lot of the world's valuable cropland. To bury this year too. Well, to grow <laughs> the plants. But oh, we, yeah, okay. you know, we need that for growing food, growing feed for animals, et cetera. And so even if we could do it, think of the effect it would have on prices. Etc. So it's uh, so this stuff is controversial that it's been suggested uh, in defense of the scientists and others who work on it. They're only suggesting it because we've delayed. They're they're just saying, listen, you wanted us to find a way to solve this problem. This could technically work. They're not necessarily saying it's a good idea. <laughs> but if you want to avoid this level of warming, these are the sort of things we could look at. Yeah. Being involved in this day to day is it hard to not be 
pessimistic all the time. I have days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. Uh, I get, so I feel like that's the most common question I get asked by people like yourself, by students, by family and everything. Doesn't you, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic and everything? And having been asked it so many times, I think that my answer really is that I think whether you're optimistic or pessimistic often has a lot more to do with you than it does to do with the data that's presented to you. Right. Right. Uh, and so I think, I am actually reasonably optimistic. It may be because I'm a reasonably optimistic person. And, um, but the other, the other reason is that I just think we have this incredible opportunity, right? So I am fearful of the severe impacts of climate change, just the, the pain and suffering that this can cause people around the world. I spent a lot of time thinking about the people I work with in other parts of the world in the Pacific islands, whose, if not them directly, their children and their descendants will not be able to live the life on the island, you know, where they grew up mm. that their parents did. Right. I mean, that's that I don't even like thinking about that. Right. Uh, but I just think the space for optimism is that we have a chance right now to address so many problems in the world by addressing climate change. And that this is just this incredible opportunity. And I mean, just, I, you know, so when there's a lot of what uh, people are terming eco-anxiety now, right? you know, j- just fears for the future because of climate change. And I'm just like, I think what we don't need therapy sessions so much. We need pep rallies because this is like the opportunity of a millennium to sort of shape what the future is going to be. Right. And I, as I tell students of this all the time, I'm like, listen, I know this is scary. But your generation has the chance, hopefully together with my generation, uh, to fix this, right? And like, this is something, this will be, this is going to be what's in the history books, right? I mean, there won't be books, but in the history devices, whatever they are, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, but, and so that's what makes me optimistic, right? I mean, I'm certainly scared about some of these dangerous impacts of climate change, as I said, but there's just such a great opportunity right now to address this, this problem, which to be honest, we didn't cause on purpose. It's not like the world did this on purpose, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. At this point, we're, do, we're kind of doing it knowingly. Sure. But at least it did. It started innocently. Yeah. On that note, is there much being done to educate people globally? Uh, you know, I, I think there is. I think one of the things that the re, there's a lot, of, and a lot of research on how to educate people about climate change. And, you know, one of the challenges is there's such political polarization on so many subjects in, in North America right now that like there's this like alternative universe of information about climate change out there that, you know, the people I have a chance to interact with or I'm given the chance to try to engage with about climate change when I'm invited to something or I can come to something and I'm welcome. Those are people already interested in the issue often. Sure. And what's so hard is to get outside. We're very tribal today. And how do we get outside our tribe Think about uh, news organizations, uh, Facebook and everything. There's just this really separate universes. And, and so the educa- educating, reaching beyond, beyond your, you know, your circle can be really hard. Um, and I'll just add to that, that although it pains, listen, I'll first say, this pains me to say as a scientist, but I don't know that everyone needs to understand the science of the problem, Right. Because, I mean, we all take, if you have a headache, you're willing to take 
medication, an Advil, a Tylenol, oh, whatever, sure. right? Do you know how it works? I mean, I don't, right? Yeah, exactly. But we trust it, yeah. right? Because we trust experts. And so I think all we really are, what scientists and experts on this are looking for is just saying, we're happy to, I'd love to be able to engage with people and educate everybody about this. But not everyone has the bandwidth, not everybody necessarily has the time. But in those cases, I'm saying, just trust that this is 200 years of work and that the people doing it know what they're talking about. And so that, and so you can trust experts. We trust doctors, we trust, you know, and, and, and move from there. So I'd love to spend, to, to spend all of my time educating, uh, uh, people about it. I just worry that it's hard to get, uh, that it can, it's hard to get to some, uh, some audiences. I'm probably the wrong person to do it working at working at a university um and that we don't always need to lead with you need to know all the details about the science right and then maybe what we need to talk about is what are the good things that what are the good actions we can take right do you and why are these good ideas for all of us right going back to that analogy though use advil or tylenol whatever you have a headache 30 minutes later you don't have a headache anymore so there's an actionable result that comes after it Whereas it seems like no matter what we do today, the result, like we were talking about, is 100, 200 years away. Mm-hmm. You think that goes into people's minds that, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do today. Or maybe, maybe what I'm doing today has no effect. No, I think, I think it does. I think you're, you're 100% right. That, uh, and just in the way it does for politicians to think uh, there, are, there are political parties and individual politicians to say, well, you listen, you know this isn't a winner for me in four years within right. the next four years. So why am I going to work on it? Not all obviously, but, but some do. Um, so in, in individual people, there's tons of evidence that that happens, right? That we, uh, we heavily sort of discount the future. We don't think it's worth as much Is you know, a dollar today is worth more to us than a dollar 10 years from now. So why am I going to worry about a decision in the future? The only thing I'll say is that there are cases where we are able to make those decisions. So most of us, uh, are able to save and put money in a pension plan. Right? right. And we're not, I mean, that is not a logical in the moment <laughs> decision, right? You'd rather spend the money now, but we recognize it's worth investing in the future. Right. We recognize, and we put tons of energy and in investing in things for our children and our grandchildren. Right. And so I think sometimes when talking about climate change, the best thing we can do is try to use these sorts of analogies and say, well, hold on a second. Think of it like this other problem you've dealt with it. You know, you've dealt with, why do you do that? Right. You know, why do you buy fire insurance? What are the odds of having a fire? That's a good point. Right? The odds are very low, but it would be catastrophic. So it's worth buying insurance. Right? And so it, there's, I just think that sometimes uh, we shouldn't get too bogged down. Uh, and again, it pains me to say this as a scientist, but we get, the scientists often get so bogged down in trying to make sure everyone knows every detail of the science instead of thinking about what part of this problem is most important to the to people sure yeah it's yeah that's a good point actually because it's the same with food right you hear oh this is good for you kale's good for you eating green salads is good for you what percentage of people actually go through the process of understanding why is this good for me they just listen to nutrition Mm -hmm. nutritionists experts on nutrition and say oh if that person says it's good for me i better eat that stuff right yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, the thing that's important, and I, I said before about, you know, you should trust the experts, but I, I think where that gets hard sometimes is what we've done, scientists, and I think just, you know, 
schools, sorry, the high school and junior high level, we don't do an amazing, we don't do a great job of explaining how science works. Mm. And I think often it's more important to talk, teach the process than to teach the findings, right? And so, you know, it's not about trusting one expert, right? It's not that I work on this subject and I know what's right. It's that I could get fired from the university and they could hire somebody else and they could do the same experiment and the same research I did and they should get the same result. And that's the core of science is that science is about replication. So we, I hear of a finding from somebody else and I think, okay, that's interesting. But did they consider this factor? They might not have. So I'm going to do a new experiment or a new set of calculations that takes that into account. And I'm going to state all the assumptions I made and I'm going to put that out there. And then that goes out. And people say, oh, okay, interesting. So Donner found this. But what about this other thing? And they try it and they test it. And so it's not like there's, you know, the apple falls out of the tree and Newton just discovers uh, discovers uh, physics, right? But it's that there's this slow building over time, right? So we're slowly building this sort of pyramid of knowledge over time. And what each of us have done, like what I've done, I've added more grains of sand to the pile, right? And that's all individual scientists really do we love in in north america to to you know have individual heroes right but science isn't really an individual enterprise each individual adds something to it and everyone else piles on and the collective knowledge builds up over time right and so when i say trust the experts i mean trust the 200 years of thousands and thousands and thousands of people working on this systematic building of knowledge that they've built this incredible structure that's got an incredibly strong foundation, right? I'm just saying that's worth trusting. It's a good process. Yeah. <laughs> Makes complete sense to me. Um, what can individual people do to reduce their carbon footprint? Uh, really good question. Um, there's, there's, so there's tons of things people can do. And if you look at uh, studies that have been done sort of comparing individual actions, you know, the, among the most, the high impact actions would be flying less, uh, driving less or just driving a more fuel efficient vehicle, switching to a hybrid vehicle, electric vehicle, et cetera. Um, and choices you make around diet, which is generally about eating less meat. I think there's a misconception that it's about where your food comes from, like how far the food traveled. And obviously that has emissions associated with it. Uh, but an eat the bigger and bigger thing is what type of food you're eating and that just, it takes so much more energy to raise a gram of beef protein than it does a gram of chicken, dairy, or vegetable protein, basically. Mm -hmm. So those are three of the really big things. Um, but those are physical actions. The ones that are hard to quantify are voting, writing, you know, writing to your local MP. I think those are probably more impactful, but it's really hard. We're trying to figure out a way to do it, but it's really hard to put a number on that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I read an article on Facebook a couple of days ago, and I don't know if this is correct or not. They were talking about electric vehicles and they're saying they're not, they advertise zero emissions, but they're not really zero emissions because the parts, the battery is being made in a plant that is likely producing carbon dioxide. Um, you're right. Uh, so right now in the world, because there are, Although with very little in British Columbia, other parts of the world are generating energy from fossil fuels. That if you're getting parts from another part of the, from another place, and there's a coal burning power plant, there's emissions associated with it. There may be emissions associated with extracting the ore, the metals that are used in the batteries, right, mm -hmm. lithium, etc. 
so nothing, if you do the full life cycle analysis, which is something we actually did a whole module on life cycle assessment in a course I taught this semester. Um, if you do the full life cycle analysis, there's very little in today's world that is actually zero emissions. But if you compare the lifetime of driving an electric vehicle, right, right, of you know using it for a number of years versus a gasoline vehicle, it's by far lower emitting. And one of the things to keep in mind is electric vehicles generally should have much less maintenance, right? Because if you think of all the maintenance, uh, those of us have had. I don't own a vehicle anymore, but. When I did have a gasoline-powered vehicle, all of the things that broke on it and went wrong with it had to do with the fact that there was gasoline and oil in the vehicle, right? So, yeah. I, yeah, it is. I'm I, Carl, I'm thinking about getting an electric vehicle. What are you going to get? Awesome. That's uh, to be determined. Yeah? Maybe the Tesla. Which one? The cheapest one. <laughs> <laughs> they're, that's part of the problem, right? Is yeah. they're, they're becoming more affordable, but they're still very expensive comparatively. No, and it's, I mean, it's changing rapidly, uh, mm-hmm. obviously, and uh, prices are going down. So BC gives a rebate. Uh, there is a max fuel uh, price, right? So if the vehicle's above a certain price, you don't get the rebate, right. which is the way of saying somebody that can afford one yeah. of the high-end Teslas exactly. probably shouldn't get a rebate. Exactly. Uh, but you can also get a rebate on a home charging station. That's interesting. Yeah, okay. because one of the things is, of course... Uh, you, can, you can charge any electric vehicle just off a normal plug, but it's slower. If you want a fast charging station you would need to install one in the cities. I don't know about new West, but they've been installing them a lot around the region. I think there's one spot yeah. on Columbia and new West I mean, yeah. or on Royal, but I, yeah, I've seen one station, but That's the cities idea. are becoming more and more into it, aren't they? Yeah. And I think you'll find, I think you'll find in the next, I mean, BC is gone is really serious. I mean, with this new clean BC pro- policy from the federal, from the provincial government, really serious about pushing towards electric vehicles. They got a whole bunch of uh, plans in place, which mean that as more, as you know, more and more models are coming on the market, just as of like 2020, there's a whole slate of new models coming on the market. The odds of them being sold in BC are much higher. Now, because of the government putting these mandates into place, they can influence what's sold at dealers, right? So they can make sure there's enough vehicles to be sold in the province. So, uh, you know, it's still expensive, but I think, you know, there, there's going to be cost parity soon enough. Yeah. Carl, remember last time I said, I, I, maybe you know about this as well, Simon. I think I read an article that said by 2040 in Canada, there will be no more gasoline vehicles sold. Uh, that I can't remember if the federal government actually put that in place, but, uh, or they but, were maybe uh, talking about yeah, it. Yeah. They're talking about it. So you, British Columbia said that. And British so they, yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, a number of countries in Europe, like France has said that Germany. Yeah. Francis yeah. Said that. yeah. Um, this is like, this is really doable. And I think it's, again, I'm not obviously a vehicle expert, but one thing that, that we, we underestimate so often how quickly change can happen, right? Like, it seems like this is impossible. There's no way we're going to switch to all electric vehicles. But once you get a certain fraction of the market and enough people buying them, suddenly there's more charging stations. I think that it changes really happen. I mean, I think all the time about the fact that um, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't have of, or nor conceive of a smartphone and think of the yeah. things you're able to do with it today. Yeah. Right. And how different the world is with that and how quickly that happened. And I, so I just, I do think the change will happen fast. Let's wrap up. Uh, I know we both got to go. Um, thank you very much for coming on. That was really informative and it was cool to hear your perspective and your outlook. Uh, I think the thing that stuck out with me was focus less on 
what could happen, but the opportunity that we have in terms of shaping the future and how much good can come of the change. That was something that I think really stuck out to me and hopefully um, listeners take away from that as well. That was a really interesting and optimistic outlook, I think. Well, thanks for that. You yeah. know, there's, there's no there's no point saving the planet if we're all going to be miserable. That's that's a great point. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for coming on. I guess let's leave people with, uh, if they want to learn more, maybe about the science, but also what they can do to lower their carbon footprint, where, where can they find accurate, solid information? Where can you find accurate, solid information? Well, okay, so you're welcome to go to my website. It doesn't have everything on there, but simondonner.com and just send me an email. And I'm, I'm happy to, to connect you with things. Um, I'm trying to think of a good, accurate information on what you can do to reduce emissions. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the large NGOs in the country, uh, non-governmental organizations mm-hmm. like the David Suzuki Foundation, keep yes. lists that are, that are quite useful. Um, you could look at those. The federal government actually has these things, as does the uh, BC government's website. Um, you can look at, uh, so those are a couple of options. There's also something called the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions. Okay. Short form is PICS. Uh, it's funded by the provincial government and they have a whole like climate 101 web series online. So if you want to learn the basics of climate change, it's a good place to do it. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks again for coming on, sharing all that knowledge. I know for me it was very informative and I hope uh, a few people picked up a few little things along the way too. Thanks for having me. Cheers. <laughs>